Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much and welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. She's a nationally known gerontologist, serves as chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, which just celebrated 65 years. It now qualifies for Medicare. We can talk about that although I guess agencies don't get Medicare. She also serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and we are happy to have another opportunity to talk in just a few minutes with Dr. Harry Croft. Yes, we're so thrilled that he's going to share the latest research, talk about Alzheimer's, um, and he's a well-known figure in the community. And he's looking for folks to volunteer for a study program, so you want to listen to that and uh, see if perhaps you qualify. That'll be fun. Absolutely. I got a question for you. When you take a look at uh, issues that involve aging and older adults, a lot of surveys done over the years, what is it that older people really want out of health care? More, well, less? Well, what they really want actually is quality over quantity. So I know last week we talked to Amy Quintero, and she was with Palliative Care, which is talking to people who have you know multiple chronic conditions. They're not going to get any better. You know, what kind of health care do you want? What do you want to do with the rest of your life? And improve the quality of and your improve, life. And, you know, and really have the treatment um, fit the quality of life. And so what they're finding, and this came out of um, Next Avenue, it was on Kaiser, Kaiser Health News originally, is that there are five areas where people are continuing to receive treatments when it's not in their best interest and it's not necessarily what they want. Um, and one of those examples might be preventive screenings. So after age 74, there's really no reason for women to get breast cancer screenings. Um, mammogram. Yeah, there, no reason to get a mammogram. Um, and yet, you know, the uh, studies show that 24% of female Medicare beneficiaries over the age of 74 got a mammogram. Uh, now, men don't understand this, but women tell me very uncomfortable. Well, uncomfortable and time-consuming and unnecessary um, in that you probably, at a certain age, the risk of dying from breast cancer is lower than the risk of dying from something else. Uh, another example in the, for men is prostate cancer screening, which actually isn't recommended now at any age. That's from the, Nas- the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, so no p- prostate cancer screening. And 24% of males uh, in, that are in Medicare actually got prostate cancer screening. So why does my well-med doctor keep wanting to do that? Well, you know, old habits are hard to break. So I need to say, Dr. Press, is keep that finger to yourself. And, and the reason that screenings are, you know, there actually can be negative consequences from some preventive health screenings. Uh, and if they find cancer, then they have to run more tests more screening, and that increases the odds that you're going to have some negative consequence. Uh, And we were just talking, so if you are 74 or older and you have cancer, you know, do you want to have all of these tests? You know, it's how how much testing do you want? How much invasive treatment do you want? There's a lot of decisions to be made, and most likely in a lot of those situations, um, the cancer is going to be those types of cancers are going to be, like I said, you'll probably you'll die, die of something, something else right. rather than that. Um, you know, and a lot of uh, – I was looking at the figures on hospice, 
and 17% of Medicare beneficiaries are not referred to hospice until their last three days of life. And so people want to get on hospice sooner. Hospice is for people that are going to die probably within six months, certainly within a year. Um, and to have that quality time to plan, you know, for their end of life and, and, and really have good quality of life. Most people, you know, don't want to die in an emergency, you know, in an intensive care unit in a hospital if they have a choice. Uh, I was talking to, I've talked to several people and they said, oh, yes, my father, they put him on hospice the last day. Seriously. One day on hospice care. There's, that's not a hospice benefit. So Medicare has a hospice benefit. Um, and if you or your loved one has, uh, you know, needs comfort and pain management rather than a cure for their disease, uh, you know, that's what you should be asking for. So uh, they were talking about people with dementia put on feeding tubes. So people with dementia at some point lose their interest in eating. They lose their ability to swallow. And putting them on a feeding tube does nothing to sustain their life or, you know, and it's extremely uncomfortable. They're not going to get better. Uh, And every family has to make their own decisions. But automatically placing somebody with dementia on a feeding tube may not be what the person would have wanted. Could they communicate that? Sure argues for doing an advanced directive when you have competency. Well, it does. And, you know, when I was at the aging conference a couple of weeks ago in Washington, D.C., that there was a physician that was actually talking about the quality metrics. So CMS scores physicians and insurance programs on it's the Center for Medicare Services, services on how what, how what kind of quality they deliver. And she had a whole list of quality metrics that are exactly like this. They're, they are screenings and metrics that are not applicable to people at a certain age of life, and yet, you know, if you have somebody with dementia, do they need to go have some of these screenings done? No, they don't need to have all of the preventive screenings done. You know, um, we, I've had family members with dementia. We don't want to screen for a lot of problems. We would prefer, you know, life to take its course. So it, it's it's interesting that healthcare is not exactly in the same place as the older adults. And if you're a caregiver out there, you know, those convert you need, don't be afraid to have the conversation with your loved one about what kind of quality of life, what they want later in life. And if it's too late for that conversation, you know, then you're the keeper of the flame. Think about what they would have wanted and you need to speak up for that. Say no to some of those preventive screenings if it's not really going to make a difference because the harm can do be more than the good of actually getting the test. And some of those referral for uh, preventive screenings are just so automatic. The, the check, tick a form. Well, you need this, you need right, this, Right, and it's on this. a report. You know, some of ours are on a pink box report, and that's because CMS said you're going to do those, and yet the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force says you don't need to do those. So we need to compare those notes. We're not physicians. Obviously, these are conversations you want to have with your primary care doctor. We don't even play doctors on television. We don't. We don't need, yeah. No. And you don't have it. That's a microphone. It's not a stethoscope. Hey, I've got a great idea. We talk so much about fitness and exercise and how important it is and how if there is a magic bullet to cure a whole lot of stuff, exercise is the answer. But maybe we could do less like, how about a 20-second exercise routine? I love, you know, this is the the short workouts. I think it was, what, a year ago we were talking about a seven-minute workout. Which seemed And we were like, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Okay, so now from the New York Times, this is Gretchen Reynolds. Um... What about a 20-second workout? So what they found <laughs> is that if you if you work out as hard as you possibly can, so 
So we are talking at, you know, the most you could possibly do in 20 seconds. Think of that uh, PE teacher you had in school that made you run in place as Mr. fast as Heinlein. you can. Yes, as fast as you can. Do you remember doing oh, that? Yeah. Running as fast as run, you can. Run, 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 Okay, so 20 seconds is easier than doing that for 30 seconds, okay? <laughs> but the it gives you just as much benefit as some longer workouts. So what they're saying is it's something like you you kind of warm up for 10 seconds, you have 20 minutes of this intensive as hard as you can without collapsing exercise on a bike, running, whatever it is, and then you have a 2-minute rest period. Cool down. Where, well, it's not a cool oh. down. It's a it's you know it's interval training. So where you're just gently doing some exercising, and then you hit it again, and you do these little six, twenty second intervals. And so rather than working out, you're only working out a couple of minutes as hard as you can at twenty second bursts, and it has you know great benefit to it. We so could do it right here. I don't know. I don't know why I have a gym membership. Heck, I'm going to go call my PE teacher and say, yell at me for 20 seconds. We could do it right here during commercials. We could. We could. And we'd be so fit. At run, the run, 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 run. I'll yell at you and you yell at me and we'll yeah. work out. That was Mr. Heinlein. He could blow a whistle louder than any human being I have ever met. Oh, no, no, no. My PE teacher um, could throw an eraser. She could peg any student with really? with her back turned. She could pick up the eraser, turn, and peg any student in the room, dead on, um, at, at all times. Today she'd be charged and hauled away in irons. I know. I know. It's really kind of sad to think. She was really good at that. You're taking the fun out of teaching. I know. I have to work on that one. <laughs> all right. So, happiness. Green things, right? I love this one. If it's green, one. it's good. This is so funny. Okay, so this is also Gretchen Reynolds, New York and Let Times. me remind folks real quickly, Dr. Harry Croft is joining us in a couple of moments to talk about a number of studies. Alzheimer's be the main focus. Yes, yes, we're, and we're looking forward to Sorry. speaking with him. But the, the funny, this was an article that, Ron, you actually sent me, um, and it, it, was, <laughs> it was talking about stress and green spaces. And so what they had found in past research that is that young people who walked for an hour through the campus, you know, the green spaces on campus, were less anxious afterward and performed better on their tests. They had better, you know, working memory on their tests. Um, than people who hadn't taken a chance to exercise. So what was it? Was it the walking, the exercise that benefited them? Was it the fresh air and sunshine? Or was it the fact that they were walking with other people, so companionship? So there was a follow-up study um, in Amsterdam, and they were they looked at the idea of, you know, just green spaces in general, but they didn't use green spaces. They only used pictures of green spaces. And they weren't wild, majestic, you know, scenes. It was just like trees. So what they did is they took the test subjects and they saw a series of pictures of urban, concrete, landscapes, congestion, um, and and then they had pictures of of trees and, you know, just common flowers, trees, grass, that kind of thing. Nothing spectacular. So they looked at the pictures of all of the urban – some of them had the urban pictures – took a really hard math test that got harder the more you the, the further you went along the harder it got so that you were maximum stressed out I know I would be um, by the time you got to the end of the test and then some of them at the end of the test got to see picture, pictures of trees and some saw pictures of urban landscape those that saw just the pictures of the trees their stress levels went down considerably really immediately it you know it kicked into that so you went from fight or flight fear of taking the math test into recovery and feeling much better and so you know it doesn't have to be actual green spaces so the next time that you're you're a caregiver 
and you're feeling stressed out, get out your calendar that you got from the Sierra Club or go online, get on your phone and track down somebody with just some real pretty green space. Look at the pictures and picture yourself there and you'll feel better. Got about a minute left. You've got a teleconnection group you want to talk about that's coming up. A topic. We have a telephone support group that's starting on our caregiver teleconnection. So that's a a telephone program. In our support group, we're looking for people who would like to get on the phone for an hour with other caregivers. Um, It's a we have a facilitator who will guide you through. It's an eight week program, and if you're interested, you can call the caregiver teleconnection at eight six six three nine zero six four nine one. That's eight six six. Three nine zero six four nine one, and it'll be just like a group setting, except on the phone. It'll be a support group, but it's just on the phone, and it's free. I like. What's wrong with that? No, that sounds pretty good. Up next, Doctor Harry Croft, who is well known here and across the country, an expert on a variety of issues. PTSD has been one of his big focuses. He's now looking at Alzheimer's, and we'll tell you about a study program uh, that may be right down your need list. That's coming up next on Caregiver SOS On Air, right here on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. If you're interested in getting fit and you care about seniors who are struggling, the WellMed Charitable Foundation's 2016 5K Run Walk for Seniors is just for you. Doctors agree physical fitness may be the magic bullet for so many health-related issues. So please join us for a family-friendly event Saturday, April 30th at 8 a.m. at the Wheatley Heights Sports Complex on the east side of San Antonio. The event benefits programs supporting seniors and caregivers in our community. And meet special guest, District 124 State Rep. Ina Minjares. There will be plenty of food, games, prizes, fitness activities. Hey, it's pet friendly and a whole lot more. Plus seniors age 60 and over and children 10 and younger run or walk for free. So the cost is just $25 for regular registration through April 27th and $30 on race day. If you prefer to sleep in, it's just $25 for sleepwalkers. It's all at the Wheatley Heights Sports Complex on the east side of San Antonio. To register, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Well, we're delighted to welcome Dr. Harry Croft and his associate, Kate Glawoski, who is a, uh, a neuropsychologist. Uh, the two of them work together on some very interesting programs, doing a lot of clinical research. Dr. Croft, a well-known psychiatrist who has uh, been in this community for many, many years. Uh, we were talking off the air, Dr. Croft, with uh, Roland Ruiz, our technical director, and he said, boy, he spent a lot of years on television. Were you on Ken's all those years? <laughs> well, I, my, my career was uh, a checkered one. I started on KSAT. And then they hired me away to go to Ken's, and I did Ken's for 20 years. The mind is powerful medicine. Uh, That was Henry Benia, by the way, who came up with that uh, phrase. And then I went to uh, Channel 4 for about two years. Couldn't keep a job, so well, I yeah. kept moving. You, you could always fall back on psychiatry. <laughs> Carol Zerniel, who is our co-host, who you just met coming in, I thought for sure the two of you had to have known each other all these years. No, but. we have not crossed paths, So, I, but I'm thrilled um, to have Dr. Croft here uh, and really curious about some of the work that you're doing in Alzheimer's. Yeah, we're, uh, we're very uh, thrilled to be one of the sites around the country. 
doing some of, of these new studies. So uh, as most people know, Alzheimer's disease has treatments that are now available. We've got uh, four or five medications. But the medications that we have now at best do very little. They, they actually make symptoms a little bit better for a while. And then the slope of the disease going downward progresses. So when people stop the medications, they go back to where people are who have taken no medications. And, and while they're taking the medicines, they're a little bit uh, better symptom-wise. Uh, sometimes it's enough to keep them out of a nursing home. So it, it makes a difference, but it doesn't treat the disease itself or the progression of the disease. The disease kept, keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And and through some interesting observations, uh, what's now believed is that once people develop the full-blown disease, it's pretty late to do anything to intervene. So the intervention, if it's going to make a difference, has to come much earlier. And so uh, we at uh, Clinical Trials of Texas, uh, their, their, their website is saresearch.com. We're very lucky to be doing some of those studies looking at medications that can be used years earlier that may, in fact, affect uh, the the disease, maybe prevent it or change the course of the disease. So, medications like? Uh, medications with no names yet, uh, with numbers uh, and, and uh, medications that work in a different way. So, so right now, one of the one of the problems with Alzheimer's disease is that nerves in the brain become affected by abnormal proteins called amyloid and tau. And these cause things in the brain called plaques and tangles that um, Dr. Alois Alzheimer described in 1906, 1906, uh, and, and are just now being really understood. So these abnormal proteins form by using normal proteins that break down in the wrong ways. And then when they break down in the wrong way, uh, these things called beta amyloid and tau begin to affect other nerves, neurons in the brain, and kill them effectively. Kill the neurons. Kill the neurons. And once that's done... There are chemicals that these neurons produce, acetylcholine being one of them, and and so the medicines we have now kind of squeeze out of the neurons that are left some of the acetylcholine, and they do that by blocking the breakdown of this acetylcholine, so they're called acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. And because they block the breakdown, you squeeze out a little more of these acetylcholines. But the nerves are still dying off. And so once there's not enough acetylcholine to squeeze out anymore, you get, uh, you, you get the worsening of the disease. So 
when people use these acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, um, if they stop it, uh, they go downhill fairly rapidly to where they would have been had they taken no medication at all. So a question would be, if you have someone who does have Alzheimer's and they're on a medication, you know, do people, should they be staying on them even though they're really, I mean, at some point, does the disease catch up with them anyways? Do you recommend that they stay on the, the medication? Or? Well, it, that's a decision that everybody makes with their doctor, of course. But, but one of the things that found, interestingly enough, is that Sometimes, even in severely uh, affected Alzheimer's patient, sort of towards the, the late stages, these medicines may change certain behaviors, aggressive behaviors, for example, or moaning or yelling out. Uh, and sometimes these medicines, for reasons nobody understands, work. And so sometimes... What happens is people take these medicines, figure mom is going downhill anyhow, even with these medicines, we'll just stop it, and they get worse. And and then they sometimes try to put them back, and it doesn't work. So some doctors suggest you just keep them on it. They're, they're basically two different kinds of medicines. One is used for mild to moderate Alzheimer's, and the other is used for moderate to more severe Alzheimer's, now they're combining these two medicines. So that's people that already have Alzheimer's. What's fascinating is that these abnormal proteins start forming years, decades even, before the symptoms of Alzheimer's. And and so the thought now is... If we can put people on some of these medications that keep these the normal protein from forming the abnormal protein, then maybe people won't develop all these symptoms. So the question then is, how the heck do you know who might be developing Alzheimer's disease down the road? Years ago, when Alois Alzheimer uh, discovered this process. He had a his patient, by the way, was in her fifties, and she was uh, exhibiting psychotic symptoms. She was seeing things and hearing things and so forth. She she may not have even be identified today, but she died. And Doctor Alzheimer at all autopsy stained her brain with filmmaking. What motivated him to do that? I, I don't know. I don't know why Just he did it. seemed the thing to do. Yeah. He, he stained it, <laughs> and he found these plaques and tangles. And he described Alzheimer's, what we now know as Alzheimer's disease, huh. but incorrectly. He thought it was a disease of younger people, middle-aged people in their 50s. So for many, many years, we thought Alzheimer's disease is a disease of 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds. And older people, there weren't many of them then, there are a lot more now, and that's a problem, as you know, that, that older people had what was called at that time senility. Right. Senile dementia, senile, the Alzheimer's type. No, no. no it not was called that, senility. Just, just senility. It wasn't called Alzheimer's because they thought that's a different disease uh-huh. than this younger people Alzheimer's that 
caused the plaques and And then somebody stained their brains. Until in the mid-60s, people died from other reasons. They stained their brains, and wow-oh, they found out these people had plaques and tangles in their brains, too, and are thinking about what Alzheimer's disease is uh, changed. Hold that thought. You're listening to Dr. Harry Croft. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Uh, we're talking about uh, study, and we're going to give you some information on that. Kate Glykowski, Klywoski is with us. Glywoski is with right. us. I'll get it right. Thank you, <laughs> You Kate. need a test to test it. Right, right. I was telling earlier, I grew up in Cleveland where there were a lot of people who had no vowels in their names, <laughs> so I should be able to get this. And she is a, a clinical psychologist, a neuropsychological expert and you're walking into her area as well yeah and 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 so so what's changed now is it it used to be the diagnosis of alzheimer's disease was really made after death it was made at autopsy you did the autopsy you stained the brains and you found these plaques and these tangles well most of us feel that's a little late to, to be able to diagnose Especially it. if you're going to help somebody. Right. Yeah, but we had no other way of doing that. And, and so what's changing is the fact that we now have ways of doing it. Dr. Kate Glywoski, our neuropsychologist, is going to explain to you some about how do you, for example, know whether this is memory problems from just aging, you know, all of us get old and we make jokes. File about cabinets we, are full. We, yeah, right. How, or is this something we need to worry about? We'll and, find and, out in just a minute. Hold that thought. Dr. Harry Croft, I'm Ron Aaron. Kate's with us as well, along with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Thank you so much for riding along with us on Caregiver SOS on Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Uh, you're listening to Dr. Harry Croft and Kate Glawaski, who is a neuropsychologist, talk about a program they're involved in. Dr. Croft, a psychiatrist who has spent a lot of time uh, working with PTSD patients and now uh, as well as focusing on issues involving uh, Alzheimer's. So uh, you were suggesting better to diagnose that it may be Alzheimer's while you're still living. That's correct. And and here's what we now know. So there's a big protein in the brain called the the protein precursor protein that that breaks down like little scissors cutting it uh, in in parts. And one of the parts it cuts it into for those people who will develop Alzheimer's is something called beta amyloid protein. And most people have heard of that that's what causes these plaques in the brain these big glom looking things because the parts of the beta amyloid glom together and form this this uh, beta amyloid mess so how do we diagnose it and 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 how do we know who's going to develop it so there is something called preclinical alzheimer's that's where they're not showing very many symptoms at all, but we may be able to pick them up using biomarkers that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. But then the other thing we, we find after preclinical 
The next stage is called mild cognitive impairment. So how does a person know whether it's just simple memory loss from aging or mild cognitive impairment? And so Kate does memory screenings in our clinic, and and perhaps she can tell you what MCI is and how we test for it. Kate Glawoski, thank you. Thank you. So uh, the concept of mild cognitive impairment actually came out of uh, the Mayo Clinic, and uh, Dr. Peterson basically was looking at these individuals, and they noticed that these folks following them through time were more likely to develop Alzheimer's. And these individuals actually uh, began to have memory problems early on, and it really was very different than your normal memory. We all will walk into a room at times and forget kind of why we were there, or we'll try to think of a name, and it takes us a second because we haven't seen the person in a while. But the typical aging process for memory is that even though it takes you a little longer to retrieve things and sometimes encode it or basically try to learn it, um, the hallmark of unhealthy aging is that even if you've seen something before, you can't really recognize it. And so that's what we do in neuropsychological testing is that um, oftentimes it can take anywhere from a screener of a half an hour to sometimes even four to five hours because we're looking at different domains, uh, cognitive domains, that we know that Alzheimer's or other different types of dementias, because there's different types too. Alzheimer's is about 60 to 7% of all dementias. But there's other dementias that look very different. So by getting a cognitive profile and being able to determine where the person's weaknesses are, we can oftentimes suspect and have a, a hunch as far as the whether this is normal aging or not. Why does it matter? If you have it, you have it. There's no cure. So why do you want to know? I think for many different reasons, that's an excellent question. One is planning. Um, if you are somebody that has family or if you're somebody who is interested in science or somebody who has a job, um, you may want to know in the future if you're going to be a lot worse from five years from now. So uh, I think knowledge in that terms is really going to be most beneficial to the individual because they can plan whether financially, whether work-wise, whether children-wise, grandchildren. You know, in the days now, grandparents raise their kids. Um, Also driving. You know, do you want somebody um, that's potentially impaired cognitively to be driving? So safety reasons, we want to know that. Um, Not that we're out to take people's driver's license away, but certainly um, we want to be protective of of everybody's safety. It's interesting. You mentioned driver's licenses. My birthday is coming up. I'll be 74. I got in the mail from the uh, driving people said, fill this form out to get your new license. I filled it out. No tests, nothing. And my old license was good for three years. The new one's good for six years. Excellent. (laughs) The older you you get, the better you are. (laughs) So I have a question on, um, with the testing that you're doing, these these screenings, have you done, has this been going on long enough so that you have a a good feeling on, you know, how effective they are in being able to identify those with Alzheimer's? Uh, That's a great question. So looking at a lot of my job is uh, statistics. Um, and what we've done um, in the field of medicine and in psychology is had a large group of people over 20, 30, 40 years of data. And you look at a person's education, 
You look at their age. You look at where they come from, their background. And you also look at their presenting symptoms and com- concerns from family. And you really sort of piece it together. So psycholo- neuropsychological testing is, is one of the, I think, larger pieces of the puzzle, but it's not the only one. Well, and it's much less invasive than having your brain stawed and half insane. That's, and, and, <laughs> I hope my patients would agree. And, and the <laughs> other reason to, do, to find out about MCI, mild cognitive impairment, is that's where we're starting to intervene now. That's one of the things we're using in these trials because the hope is if we can interfere before they get dementia, and by the way, dementia is the next step. So there's preclinical Alzheimer's, there's mild cognitive impairment, and the next step is called dementia. And dementia is where you have problems with thinking, with memory, with language, with uh, spatial orientation, executive function, putting things together. Uh, You have that plus now an impairment in function. So not everyone that has mild cognitive impairment will develop Alzheimer's. Is that correct? There's, no. There's about a 40% chance each year that those individuals are, are greater likely to develop it the following year. So just because you have mild cognitive impairment, it's, it's not necessarily, but it leads you to a higher percentage of, of, of chance, especially within one to five years. What would be an example of mild cognitive impairment? So, so by definition of mild cognitive impairment, there's a significant decline. Um, if you look at statistics, and not to bore everybody, but it's about a standard deviation from what somebody else is functioning at. So we're talking... Um, at least, you know, uh, 50% worse. Give um, me some real-world examples. Sure. Roland's looking at his smartphone. Would I be able to do that if I had mild? Yes, for sure. You would be able to function because you don't have dementia, but what you would notice is that it's a heart, it's, it's a greater problem for you to learn things and even when you're learning them you're having to relearn them as if it's the first time you're learning it now it's not that you can't remember your your relatives names it's not that and in fact you can still learn but it's really dragging you in terms of your work it's really dragging you in terms of socially and and those people end up saying you know what i'm not i don't enjoy my work as much as i used to i don't enjoy going out as much as I used to. And oftentimes it's because it's a strain for them, uh, so they avoid it. (laughs) But they're able, unlike people that have now developed dementia, they may not ask the same questions again and again and again. Right, and and they don't have any behavior problems per se. And they can still function. They're still working. And they cope very well because everything else is intact, so it's more of just the the memory. So, So the question we always get is, What's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? Because we tend to put them together. So dementia means cognitive impairment plus a problem in functioning day to day. As Kate said, there are several different types of dementia. The most common type is dementia of the Alzheimer's type, but there's also uh, dementia that comes after strokes. There's something called frontotemporal dementia, which is a different kind. There's dementia with Lewy bodies. Uh, there's dementia with Parkinson's disease and, and other kinds of dementia. But the most common one, two-thirds, by the most common by far, is Alzheimer's disease. And Alzheimer's disease is a progressive, ongoing disease that right now ends in death. Should it, it be characterized as a disability? Oh, yeah. That's a hot issue today oh. because if you can get it 
right? So as characterized as a disability, right? Then you become qualify. eligible for services. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. It's of course it is a disability, and if you don't believe that, ask the caregivers, ask the family members of those with the disease, and it's a disability not only for the person with the disease. But for all those that uh, the entire family, and and by the way, it's the sixth leading cause of death right now. It's probably more like the third leading cause of death. The problem is that on death certificates we don't list Alzheimer's disease. Right, it's, it's the, heart, the attack heart attack or the pneumonia or the, pneumonia or, mm-hmm. or the other problems. So, but it's but it's the only one in the top ten causes of death in this country that that cannot be cured, cannot be treated, and, and we, we're desperate to try to figure out what to do for it because the number one risk factor for Alzheimer's is age, age. and our population is aging. And, and so as our population ages, right now it's, what, 5 million people are thought to have Alzheimer's disease uh, in, in, in uh, what, 2050, they're going to estimate it to be 15 million. Uh, the budget can't handle them, can't handle them. And, and the cost of taking care of someone with Alzheimer's is, is tremendous now. It will be even worse. And the cost in terms of suffering is, is even greater in lost hours and so forth. So if we can figure out something to do, about these disorders, uh, what a wonderful thing that would be. You're looking for some volunteers? We are. And go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, you know, yeah, looking for the volunteers because so you, you mentioned a test and you were talking about younger people, but how young are we talking about for your, for we're, your tests? We're basically, your study, I should say. We're basically talking, Kate, uh, it's, it's people 50. generally 50 years and older. Mm-hmm. Is what we're looking for. And some of the studies we're doing, by the way, one of the studies adds a medication to an already existing Alzheimer's uh, uh, disease uh, being treated. So it, it, uh, uh, we're not just looking for the preclinical, we're looking for those with the disorder who are mild to moderate and perhaps taking medication. And there's a hope one of these medicines may make those medicines more effective longer. So you're looking for people 50 and over that have some evidence of some sort of cognitive, mild cognitive impairment or pre-memory problems. That's correct. And, and we're looking for people at different stages for different studies. But, but uh, remember I told you this beta amyloid? Well, this beta amyloid starts to accumulate in pe- people in their 50s and 60s. But we never knew it before because they weren't dead and we could not talk Can you do them. a blood screen to find any of this? Well, uh, no, because it doesn't show up in the blood. But it does show up in the spinal fluid. Uh, number one, and and more importantly, we now have what are called biomarkers, and I'll tell you about those. Yeah, can you stay a little longer? I know we had, sure. we'd like to keep you a little longer if you don't mind. And Kate, you can stay? Absolutely. Perfect. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel, and we will continue the conversation talking about uh, Alzheimer's and a screening test that uh, may get you into a study program. 
If you're interested in getting fit and you care about seniors who are struggling, the WellMed Charitable Foundation's 2016 5K Run Walk for Seniors is just for you. Doctors agree physical fitness may be the magic bullet for so many health-related issues. So please join us for a family-friendly event Saturday, April 30th at 8 a.m. at the Wheatley Heights Sports Complex on the east side of San Antonio. The event benefits programs supporting seniors and caregivers in our community and meet special guest, District 124 State Rep. Ina Minjares. There will be plenty of food, games, prizes, fitness activities, hey, it's pet-friendly, and a whole lot more. Plus, seniors age 60 and over and children 10 and younger run or walk for free. So the cost is just $25 for regular registration through April 27th and $30 on race day. If you prefer to sleep in, it's just $25 for sleepwalkers. It's all at the Wheatley Heights Sports Complex on the east side of San Antonio to register Go to WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. Well, thank you so much for riding along with us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Harry Croft, our co-host, Carol Zerniel, is here. And our other special guest is Kate Glawoski, who is a neuropsychologist. She and Dr. Croft work together in a variety of areas of clinical research, including a study they're involved in now on some medications that may be able to uh, treat those who are showing symptoms, perhaps, of developing uh, Alzheimer's disease. So remember I said that we diagnose Alzheimer's at autopsy by seeing these plaques and tangles. Well, what we now have are what are called biomarkers, and we've looked for those for a long time. So let me give you an example. Heart disease, clogged arteries are hard to find. You have to do an angiogram and so forth for those. But another way is to find a biomarker that tells you there's likely to be heart blockage, and that's cholesterol. So the reason we measure cholesterol is not because we care much about the cholesterol, but it's what it marks for, and that is heart disease. Well, biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease include MRI scans to make sure that this is not something else like a stroke or frontotemporal dementia or another type of dementia. So we do those. And and if you went to pay for an MRI, it's probably, what, $1,000 now? Uh, so we do that. Another thing we have is called a PET scan. And PET is the highest of the high-tech stuff. And there are two kinds of PET. There's a cheaper PET that Medicare pays for. And then there's the more expensive PET that Medicare doesn't pay for. And that's the one that works. And we do the more expensive one, which probably costs you $7,500. And, and that's it. the one with all the pretty colors. It's pretty colors. And <laughs> what it tells us, it sure. shows us in living color because it gloms on to the amyloid before it maybe forms these plaques. And it tells us how much of that is there. And those people we know will probably go on to develop Alzheimer's at some point. And then we can measure the spinal fluid, and we do that in the study. It's scarier than it really is once people get in. Uh, it's voluntary, by the way, but we can measure the amyloid and the tau protein in the spinal fluid. And, and so we do these tests to make sure people are likely to develop Alzheimer's. There are also some genetic testing, but those aren't so good yet. People with the APOE4 gene 
are more likely to develop Alzheimer's, but and some people who have it don't. And no. it's relatively small. The genetic link yeah. for Alzheimer's is relatively Very. small. Unfortunately, unless you're one of those people. Where are those people from, Kate, That where it's everybody in the family gets it? Is that Colombia or Bolivia or somewhere? Yeah, it's, it's, some, it's somewhere. I do know that um, people with Down syndrome are, are yeah. m- yes, much more likely because will get of Alzheimer's if they live yeah. long enough. Yeah, so if your so, dad, for example, or your mother... Uh, had Alzheimer's, Dr. Croft, that doesn't mean you have a great risk. No, it means you have a greater risk than if they didn't, but it's not a great risk, and it doesn't tell you for sure <laughs> yeah. that, that you're going to get it. So what, what we are doing now, let me just give you some of the science, which is really kind of cool. So <laughs> this beta amyloid gloms up in the brain and kills off cells, right? So what if we could attack, we could get the body to attack that beta amyloid like it's a foreign substance. And so part of what we do is we can inject antibodies, monoclonal antibodies they're called, that glom on to the beta amyloid that the immune system of the body goes after. So that's one of the studies. That'd be a good thing. Yeah, yeah, that would be a great thing. They've tried several vaccines. That's on the preventive the sides with yeah, the antibodies the, building up resistance. The, yes, and and huh. uh, unfortunately, these studies take years. And imagine we're paying for PET scans and MRI scans and spinal fluid taps and all these things. Uh, these studies run into the billions of dollars. And so far, most of them have not worked. Uh, the the monoclonal antibodies they do glom on to the thing and they get rid of of the amyloid. Tragically, they cause brain inflammation and uh, problems that are not good. So uh, we're doing studies to look at ways that we can intervene early and stop the progression. Hopefully, at that point, these studies, of course, are free. They don't costs the family anything. And the person gets paid, too. Yeah, the person gets paid. They're generally two-year studies. And people wonder, why the heck should I get in a study? And and I'll tell you what I think the simple answer is. There's nothing on the market that treats this tragic disease. At least you've got a shot in a study of getting something that may help you, number one. Number two, it's good for science. You may advance the science. Uh, and you get seen frequently by people that really seem to care, you know? So we hope You make people- new friends. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. how, so how many people are you looking for for your study? As many people as we can find. But basically, you know, because to get people whose MRIs are the right way, whose PET scans are the right way, uh, whose uh, uh, various testing that Kate does are the right way. You have to have a large number of people at the top of the funnel. Right. You're going to screen a lot of people out. We screen a lot of people. So so what's the name of the site, Kate? Uh, Do something about memoryloss.com. Do something about memoryloss.com, which means if you can remember your yes. site, you're actually right. doing pretty good. Or, or <laughs> SA Research. You know, S is in San Antonio, SA research.com. Well, and what's exciting is that San Antonio it really is among the one of the leading places with Alzheimer's research going on. So, it, you know, it's fantastic. 
the medical school is building a whole unit, but that's several years away. We're very fortunate that we're getting to do these studies now. I've got the phone number, too. It's 852 Four three six nine, and that's area code two one zero. Correct eight five two forty three sixty nine, and and we're really looking for people, and we hope they will they will give us a call. Now, part of the problem here, of course, is we're living longer. Yes. If we, if we weren't living beyond forty five and fifty, there'd be no problem with Alzheimer's. That's correct. Yeah, that, you're right. So Except there you are. for those few people, right? Relatively the, few. The yeah, early very, onset, very few. And and so that's the problem. And as the baby boomers, and I'm a pre-baby boomer, as the baby boomers age, I mean the numbers are staggering. staggering. The number and and we can keep people alive a lot longer. So you know, at uh, Ron is seventy four. I'm seventy one. I mean, I don't know what seventy one's supposed to feel like. But I don't feel like I remember 71 being when well, I was growing that's up. that's right. 70 was really old. Yes. That was oh, old. I mean, it, it was dead or nursing home time. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but now people are living longer, and as they're living longer, they're showing this up. So, uh, but, so the drugs you're going to be testing in this study don't have a name yet. These are new drugs that are not on the market. They're only available if you enroll in the study. Correct. Which I think is an you know it takes such a long time for drugs to get researched and get to market. I mean that's a problem because it can take a decade. We're, the stuff that we use today was tested on maybe in the 1990s yes. or you know, and, and that's the and that's the reality. Now how the mice do on, on these drugs? The mice did. They can actually interestingly inject Look mice cake, with you genes. Run. That make them right. have amyloid plaques sure. in their brains. Yeah, they get mice Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. mice. Right. Do, do, do you work with naked mole rats? Because we've been reading we about love them naked a lot. Mole rats. No. Oh. <laughs> okay, well, it's mice are okay. They're just not as yeah, funny. The mice to talk were happy when you just let them smoke, rats. but now, now they're doing all this other stuff. Uh, do you work w- with lab animals? I do not, but I do know that, um, you know, as far as clinical trials goes, any time that you have um, a trial that gets to humans, it has to have gone through. Uh, you know, earlier right. primates and been fairly successful. Right. And, and those mice can't answer the questions she's no, asking. No, they can't. But they can, they can run that maze pretty well, apparently. Yeah, that's, <laughs> well, there's the key. Yeah. Well, we run a maze. It's called life. <laughs> that's so, uh, Harry, are, are you hopeful? You're, you said you're 71. Uh, as we age, the odds are our risk for Alzheimer's goes up exponentially. Uh, are you going to get us a prevention and a cure before we reach that point? Uh, and Bonet just called uh, off the air. That's his wife. <laughs> She's hoping. <laughs> yeah, she. I, I hope, I, and I certainly hope that for people who are now in their fifties and sixties, uh, we may have something. Uh, I hope, like all get out, I don't get it, and you don't get it. And you well, it is. It's it. the biggest fear. I mean, that yeah, really is right. the the number one fear among older adults. Is that's two. It's running out of money and getting Alzheimer's. Right. That's correct. And, and, you know, we can treat those other things, heart disease and even cancer, but we have Not yet no treatment yet for Alzheimer's. Got to stop you right here. I want to thank both of you very much for coming. And give that phone thank number you. again for folks who may want to get into this study. And uh, you lose nothing by asking about it. 210-852-4369. And it's do something about memoryloss.com. Or if you can't remember that, it's saresearch.com. Dr. Harry Croft. Kate, 
Glywoski, thank you both for coming in very much. For Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. We will talk with you again next week right here on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer, or on podcasts. They're available as well. Just go to caregiversos.org. Have a great weekend, everybody. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.